0: This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. My guest today is Helen Fry. I've been reading her book, Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6. But the first question is, Helen, what is about all this spy stuff that fascinates you so? What is it that draws you in? Well, for me
1: personally, it was Originally with war veterans who'd served in some aspect of intelligence that had been declassified. And I started to explore that. And then I realized very quickly that all the kind of Ian Fleming, James Bond, stuff had actually got its roots in real intelligence because I grew up believing that Ian Fleming was absolutely brilliant. He'd created his, his spy gadgets and, and the world of cocktails and Bond. But when you get into declassified intelligence files, you soon find that actually it's so close to reality. And I think that is so compelling. It's that kind of mystery between fact and fiction.
0: And you have written this book, and you say, The Man Who Saved MI6, and his real name was Thomas Kendrick. Now, I'd never heard of him. Am I in the minority? Does everyone in the street know about Thomas Kendrick, everyone but me?
1: No, not yet. He's completely in the shadows. I mean, he worked for what today we call MI6 for around 40 years, and even his own family were not aware of exactly what he'd done, although they did eventually know that he worked for MI6 or the Secret Intelligence Service. So, no, he's not a household name yet. I'm really hoping he will be because a study of his life, what I have been able to piece together, it's really clear that he was one of our greatest commanders of intelligence and shaped how intelligence developed in the 20th century, and that included shaping and training the way that American intelligence developed as well so he's really really significant particularly for helping us to win the intelligence war in the second world war alongside Bletchley Park.
0: Right that is quite an assertion that this man is that important now why do we not know about him is it because of the secret world he was in and the secrets are secure is that the reason?
1: Yes, essentially. When I started out 20 years ago, MI6 officially didn't exist. And it's only with the Intelligence Act, I can't remember its full name, but the Act of Parliament, a regulatory Act of Parliament, which regulates uh, how intelligence agency's work that we kind of they officially existed and then we have the official history which came out keith jeffrey's wonderful official history of mi6 those archives have never been released to the rest of us and won't be i was lucky enough that some of his work was in war office files so they were finally declassified they didn't have to be but they were so you know, I didn't start out on this 20 years ago believing he was going to be one of our greatest wartime commanders or intelligencers of the 20th century. I was just fascinated by this enigmatic figure who in Vienna in the 1930s, in 1938, when Hitler had annexed the country, went on to rescue thousands of Jews on a par with Frank Foley, we've heard of the well, he, the Oscar Schindlers of the world. So he really was the Oscar Schindler of Vienna. And I just thought, yeah, what else can I find out about him? And he went on to be one of the three minders of Rudolf Hess, when he bailed out of Scotland in May 1941. So Kendrick seems to have been at all the central intelligence operations of the 20th century. And I wanted to discover just how important he was and his role in it. And I really wasn't expecting to find what I've uncovered.
0: Now, these things that you tell me uh, and I read it in your book and it makes me tingle because he was there and you have found him now. One of the things that he did was start recording everybody. He he put bugs into rooms. Now, this, I mean, as, as a sort of an old radio man, this is <laughs> fascinating. And that must have been quite avant-garde at the time.
1: Oh, absolutely. It, this whole operation which he commanded in the Second World War, it started on the 1st of September, actually, the day that Poland was invaded already, he'd had microphones embedded in his first site that he used, which was the Tower of London, of all places. And I've been able to piece together which part of the Tower of London, the whole Salt Tower, Broad Tower, all along the back there of the Tower of London. I mean, this is just magical, isn't it? This is a secret history. And he knows that we have to gain intelligence from Nazi Germany. Mi6 agents and networks have pretty much been decimated until 1942 from a whole number of reasons, not only from Kendrick's own betrayal to the Gestapo, but but other incidents as well. So we need intelligence from Nazi Germany. We've got Bletchley Park, which hopefully going to shortly crack the Enigma codes, but. He knew that prisoners would have vital intelligence and you can't rough them up in interrogation. So he creates this whole unit across the wartime, which really charms the secrets out of Hitler's top generals eventually. And prisoners of war starts in the Tower of London, then ramps it up. Eventually would have three more sites just outside London. So incredible visionary and setting this up with no blueprint. He was just extraordinary in that respect. And we now also have an understanding of just how significant the intelligence was that was gained from his sites.
0: Now, um, radio is up and going by that time. So there mm. are microphones, but tape recording wasn't standard by then. So how did he actually do it?
1: So the... Tiny, tiny microphones came originally from America, from the Radio Corporation of America. They were used sometimes by the BBC, actually. They were kind of big, clumpy pieces of equipment, but they would sort of take that apart and take out just the microphone. And these were hidden behind skirting boards in in a stately home, Trent Park in North London, embedded in walls behind pictures, eventually even hidden. They had to be small enough to be hidden inside plants, plant pots. I love it. um, Seats in the garden, the trees in the garden, everywhere was wired for sound. And then the huge amount of grey wiring that they're connected to would go back to what was known as an M room and there could be more than one m room on a site and these had teams of secret listeners male secret listeners listening for hours at a time sometimes very ordinary boring stuff if the prisoners are talking about what they have have for lunch but very quickly particularly often in a soft interrogation a kind of chat they would come back to their cell and start revealing and boasting about what they hadn't told the interrogating officer, not realizing that the places were were wired for sound. <laughs> it's very clever, isn't it? But it was. We understand the latest state of the art technology, such that you know, if in their room they had a basin, so sometimes if they were security conscious, they would turn on the the tap and kind of whisper to each other, "Well, I didn't tell him about this kind of thing." Oh, no, they don't know about that. But the microphones were so sensitive, they could even pick that up. I love
0: it. This is what makes the book um, so fabulous, because you can almost feel the way you write it, that you're excited. And another thing, I found out this, you know, what (laughs) was it? What was it? Um, in Vienna in the 1930s, everyone was initially worried about communism, but then yes. it became clear that what we should really worry about is the Nazis. And did this affect your man, Kendrick?
1: Absolutely, because he'd been placed in Vienna in 1925 by the Secret Intelligence Service, MI6, if you like, and his role was to scope follow, find out all the Soviet um, spies and agents embedded across Europe. And they were using Vienna as the the center of espionage, really. And a lot of them were hidden in communist organizations. So really, the threat had been the Soviet Union. But of course, that does change, as you say, in the early 30s with the rise of Adolf Hitler. Uh, But Kendrick is still monitoring the communist threat that never really goes away and so he's got in the 1930s the dual role i mean it's a huge brief to track german agents and spies to try and map the German rearmament program he'd send agents for example undercover as dock workers or whatever in the ports the Wilhelmshafen was one of them for example just to kind of work out what battleships is Hitler building what new battleships their specifications their capability that kind of thing and it wasn't easy to infiltrate the ports as as we know from the book but always having a an eye on the Soviet threat as well. So it's a very interesting mix, that Vienna of the 1930s. And what I love is that he's just charming his way through Viennese high society with his cocktail parties, all aimed at gradually getting information and building networks. I mean, he was just brilliant at it.
0: I I mean, I I was thinking um, Smiley, uh, as portrayed (laughs) by Alec Guinness um, in Tinker Taylor. He doesn't look like a spy. Your man, he just seems like a bane, very good host, um, very good with ladies. Is that how he was?
1: Yeah, he was just a natural, um, very funny. The grandchildren told me that he would love to to play jokes, play pranks on people. He would just good old-fashioned humor. A bit he would he could probably pass in step toe and or something for <laughs> yeah. good old, or, or only fools and horses good old-fashioned slapstick humor but he was incredibly kind loved to just chat to people to hear their perspective he was a very cultured man loved state opera would mix in those intellectual circles so you get a sense that he just I mean he really enjoyed life he wasn't really into fast cars but he loved rugby he loved the cultural life of Vienna the concerts and he would go to as many as possible but especially the cocktail parties he just loved meeting people and just moved completely at ease In aristocratic circles or religious circles, intellectual circles, it doesn't matter who they were, he could move with ease. So he was perfect, really, and it took someone to betray him to the Gestapo because the Germans, he was so good, the Germans couldn't find him when they occupied Austria in 1938. They knew MI6's top man was in Vienna, but they just couldn't work out who it was. He was so good.
0: And he was arrested. Mm. Um, had he already started um, the helping Jews escape thing? Had he already started the mission to save Jewish lives?
1: Yeah, that started the morning after Hitler annexed Austria. So we're talking about the 12th of March, 1938. He knew it was coming. Um, the secretaries, his Um, SIS secretaries that were helping him to run his spy networks. They had a party in February 1938 and they said, look, this is the last party we're gonna have. Hitler's about to move. And we now know he did in just before the middle of March 38. And they knew that the Jewish community would be immediately at risk. And it's utter chaos. When he arrives at the passport control office, says so he was the British passport control officer. Well, that was that, that was
0: the cover. That was the cover that for was The
1: Secret. Yeah, and even his wife didn't realize, which I think is incredible. His wife just thought he was the British passport control officer who was issuing visas and passports. But of course, actually, his role was not to do any of that. It was to run spy networks, which he did extraordinarily well until the crisis hits. And we need intelligence at this time. We need to know what Hitler's designs are on Czechoslovakia. He has huge networks across Czechoslovakia, and at that time, he cannot stand by and watch Jewish 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 community suffering. I mean. 1st of April, it's well known, So over 7,000 Jewish males were carted off to concentration camps. Some of them didn't come back. Some of them, they, they did manage to get out. But, you know, these were dangerous times. Sigmund Freud was subject to periods of raids by the Gestapo. His son was under house arrest. His daughter was taken away for questioning. We can't underestimate just how dangerous this was. But, you know, Kendrick made a conscious decision to become a rescuer. And that is fascinating because he could have left it to others and he worked 12, 15 hours a day until his arrest, rescuing. And according to Foreign Office Files, it says he saved up to 200 Jews a day. That's and That's why I, Well, it is. And that's why I just wanted to, to find out what can we know about exactly what he did not only his rescue efforts but his intelligence career because i think the man is a hero and he should be recognized along with our other heroes and heroines
0: there is so much to talk about in your book and um, so much to talk about so little time i want to talk about the hess thing because mm. that's almost unbelievable isn't it hitler's deputy gets in a plane to come and talk to some scottish bloke with a title and the plane crashes then what
1: happens well hess bails out and of course he's picked up but nobody recognizes him to start off with and he's got the initials a h he comes under the false papers of alfred horn but actually a h of course is the same Ironically, initials as Adolf Hitler. It's thought now, and this is a work of one of my colleagues, Michael Smith, in his book about Kendrick's colleague, Frank Foley, that MI6 lured Hess to Scotland. Well, I mean, I would would endorse that. Um, From what Michael Smith has researched, I think that's probably correct. I don't know for any other reason why that wouldn't be correct. But if you look at the declassified files from Hess, And there are some that have been declassified. He is clearly being held by MI6 and his movements are being directed by C, the head of MI6. And one of the minders for a while is Kendrick. So he leaves his bugging operation just for a few months in the hands of his capable senior intelligence staff. And he becomes one of Hess's minders and lives with him for three to four months. And of course, they bug his conversation. (laughs)
0: I mean, mean, Hess, in the end, I mean, he tries to kill himself, doesn't he? Um, And he goes Mm. slightly, slightly uh, exotic in his head. Um, How close did Kendrick get to this man?
1: Well, Kendrick, actually, the three minders that included Kendrick, sat next to him at meals i mean they would take meals with him they would have a walk in in the grounds of mitchett place which is near aldershot that was a place where hess was secretly being held and kendrick had the bedroom next to hess hess was always treated very well in england actually wherever he was taken and it's very clear in the files that he was given a bedroom and a sitting room but he had these you're quite right, moments of insanity. And he was incredibly unstable and that didn't change at Nuremberg in 1945, 46. And there is one incident in June, 1941. So he's been there for a few weeks. And Kendrick is there, he's woken in the middle of the night, comes running out in his pyjamas or dressing gown to find Hess has just kind of lurched over the banister and is lying. And he does break his leg, so he's in traction for a number of weeks, is Hess. So it, it's a very difficult period for Kendrick. I mean, the grandchildren said he very rarely spoke about it, but he did say he got fed up with Hess who was a bit of a nutcase. That, that was what he told <laughs> <laughs> It's an under-exaggeration, isn't it?
0: <laughs> uh, if just fast forward. I've got another picture that I want to talk about. Uh, when did Kendrick die?
1: He died in March 1972, and he was the grand age of 91. He had a good long life.
0: What, uh, what I found, I think, shocking is probably not too strong a word. He lived later life with his wife, mm. but they they really sort of lived in partial penury. He didn't mm. live in splendor. And one of the highlights of his life was someone cu- coming around to cook him tripe and onions. Now, oh, this, I know. This is not the high life, is it?
1: No, and they did struggle financially the family said he did struggle towards the end of his life so it's terribly sad you know this is the man who I mean he didn't complain about it but this is the man who was pivotal in enabling us to defeat Nazi Germany way up there with the legacy of Bletchley Park and yet you know he ends his days in relative poverty actually and struggling to make ends meet it is terribly sad
0: now you called your book, Spymaster, The Man Who Saved MI6. Did he mm-hmm. think he was working for MI6, or was it always SIS that he thought he was working for?
1: Well, yeah, this is where kind of name changes. He started off working for the predecessor of SIS, which was a branch of Military Intelligence 1, MI1C. Uh, so that was his how he started off. And then, of course, that morphs into SIS and then... Uh, later in the wartime becomes known as MI6. I mean, it's very unclear as to where the name changes occur and, and whether there really is any difference or not. So I'm still trying to get my head around that. In another book, says- <laughs>
0: another book, Helen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, in spite of what it says, the official history, SIS and MI6 are supposed to be the same, but sometimes people object to that. I don't know. Um, it's a complicated history, I guess, and we won't know totally, but I guess at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. But yes, he he knew he worked for the Secret Intelligence Service. He was one of the founding members. He was there with the likes of Claude Dancy, who becomes the deputy head of MI6, with Stuart Menges. He was served with him in the First World War. Menges becomes the third head of MI6. There's a very close circle, and they, they emerge in my book. All these manner military of
0: intelligence officers. All manner of people come up. I mean, these those more mature amongst us will remember the name Hugh Gates School. He pops oh, up yeah. in this book. I mean, who knew? Well, you knew, but I didn't.
1: Well, that's it, you see. You start reading around and researching about Vienna in this period and who is in Vienna in 1933-34. That's a crucial political period of huge upheaval. I mean, there's plenty of spying going on. Um, That kind of world of, I know Graham Greene wrote about Vienna at the end of the Second World War, but it's still that same kind of world with spies and those that are on the run hiding in the sewers of Vienna. And Kendrick was tracking, what well, it was communists in the in 33, 34. Hugh Gatesgill's there. He goes on to work in intelligence in the Second World War and political warfare, economic warfare. Uh, but he's there with his friend, Kim Philby, although he doesn't meet Philby when he's in Vienna. But Kim Philby is there. There's a prominent journalist, Eric Geddy, who was a household name in his day. And, yeah, I do raise some interesting points about what Philby was doing there in 1933, 34, before he's taken up by the Russians. So it's a fascinating history, and who would know that Kendrick's life would have crossed with these key figures in intelligence history?
0: What should we remember him for? Oscar Schindler, we know what we remember him for. What should we remember Kendrick for, first and foremost?
1: Do you know, I think it has to be his contribution to winning the intelligence war of the Second World War. I think that's his greatest legacy.
0: And you said that you want to make him into a household name. You're doing a good start. What next? What else can you do (laughs) to raise the profile?
1: Oh, that's the thing, isn't it? Just keep going. I mean, I, I don't want this research to be lost if I'm the only voice. And, and not only that for, for his wartime work, which I wrote up in, in my book, The Walls Have Ears, which preceded this. Um, I just think we need to keep that history alive. Now I've been shouting about it, so to speak, for 15 to 20 years, and it, we are making inroads. I'm giving lots of talks, and I have been for the last decade, and people love these stories, but it's slow. I don't know how you turn that into a household name. Maybe it should be made into a movie. I really hope that it does, because maybe that's the trigger that will finally get him recognised, and he really, really deserves it. We mustn't lose sight of just how significant he was in our history.
0: The book is Spymaster. It's a splendid read and splendidly researched
1: by Helen Fry. Helen, thank you. Thank you.